This podcast is brought to you by Amicus Attorney, developers of legal practice management software. Let Amicus help you run your practice so you can focus on what you do best, practice law. Visit amicusattorney.com and get started today. Government entities at all levels often set aside a portion of work for minority and women-owned businesses, including law firms. But many people are unsure about how to land those contracts. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm getting tips for program participation from Emery Harlan. He's a Milwaukee employment attorney and a co-founder of the National Association of Minority-Owned Law Firms. Welcome to the show, Emery. Thank you. My first question for you is if you have a minority or women-owned law firm and you want, the first step would be getting certified, right? That is correct. Okay. Is it worth it to hire someone to help you do that, or can you really navigate the process on your own? I think um, a lot of uh, governmental entities have made efforts to make the process um, pretty easy to handle, so I don't think it's uh, necessary to hire a business to help you get certified. I think it's just the function of making sure you go to the governmental entity's website and you understand what information they need from the law firm in order to uh, go through the certification process. So it's a, you know, I think in the early days it was a little bit more challenging for law firms to get through the process, but I think in the era that we're in now it's pretty easy to navigate. Okay. And what types of certifications are available? for the women and minority-owned businesses? So I, th- I think um, probably the majority of governmental entities certify businesses as being uh, either minority-owned or women-owned. So mm-hmm. that means 51% of the equity of the law firm uh, has to be held by members of racial or ethnic minority groups uh, or um, by a woman. Some governmental entities, for instance here in Milwaukee, the certification for the city of Milwaukee is not based on uh, minority status or, or being a woman. It's a small business certification. So there's uh, information that's solicited uh, regarding, you know, uh, economic status, you know, revenues of the business, personal net worth. And so a law firm owner would need to provide that sort of information. Oh, that's interesting. I also have the impression that the private sector has set aside programs also sometimes. Is that correct? Yeah. So there have been a, you know, I would say over the last um, 20, 25 years, the private sector um, taking a cue from the public sector have developed what's known as supplier diversity programs designed to make sure that they're Supply chain includes uh, businesses that are owned by women and minorities, um, and so those those programs have developed at major corporations or even medium to smaller corporations that care about making sure they have a diverse network of suppliers. And I would imagine there's probably there's probably more people who are on the program list in terms of law firms than there is work available, right? both in the government and private sector. I, I think that's right. And and then once you 
are included on the list, you know, whether you receive work as this the function of diligence on the law firm's part and building relationships um, both in the public and private sector. Well, what are some ways, once you're on the list, to stand out from the others? I mean, other than doing a good job. So I, I think it's about building uh, and understanding at the public and private sector entities in terms of what the particular law firm's core competencies are. You know, we certainly spend a lot of uh, time talking with the various entities in terms of what our capacity is, what are we really good at. We're not shy, and I think businesses that are successful in getting work, they're not shy about making sure that the public sector or private sector entity is made aware of recent successes, um, deals that are closed, litigations that have been successfully completed. So it's a matter of on a regular basis without being too um, forceful or, or you know, inundating the uh, prospective client with too much information, but making sure on a regular basis you're, com- you know, communicating what you're good at and things that you've done that they might be interested in. Okay. Also, I wanted to know if someone has experience working in government and he or she goes out to private practice, can that be helpful with getting business from the programs? Absolutely. Um, And you see that quite often that there'll be someone who was in the legal department at a governmental entity that decides uh, that they want to um, either join an existing firm or start their own firm. And because they understand, you know, how the government process works, you often will see those individuals in the private sector having some success doing work for the governmental entities. So I can think of a law firm here where there was a, a woman who was a former long-time lawyer in the city attorney's office who has gone into private practice and had a great deal of success doing work for the city uh, because of her relationships and knowledge of how the city operates. When you're trying to get business from these programs, are there some ethical concerns you need to be cautious about? Like, for instance, maybe there's rules to what sort of business a government entity can give someone who used to work for them or things like that. I would imagine probably, I'm sure it all depends certainly on where one is, what entity it is, but I would imagine there's be some issues that you're going to come across that just don't feel quite right. Yeah, so I mean, two broad areas of concern for the lawyer who used to work internally at a city attorney's or corporation counsel's office. You have to um, be mindful of conflicts of interest, obviously things that you would have handled uh, when you were at the city attorney's office. There may be some prohibitions against doing that same work once you're uh, in the private sector. Often there's a a kind of a waiting period, you know, and it varies, you know, governmental entity to governmental entity, but sometimes it can be as long as a year that you have to wait before you can get reengaged in the private sector. So that's, you know, one set of issues that um, one has to parse through. The other issue is just making sure that there is a arm's length 
relationship between the law firm and the governmental entity. So to the extent, you know, there's any sort of benefit conferred on the uh, public sector official, you have to be very cognizant of it. In some instances, there's a strict prohibition that you can't provide anything of value to the government official. In other instances, it is allowed, for instance, to take someone to lunch or, you know, pay for their attendance at a conference, but there's a disclosure of those payments so that there is, uh, you know, sunshine so that people can know that those financial relationships exist. And you've been involved in, uh, or you've been working with getting business partially through these programs for a long time. I'd imagine you've probably come across a situation that made you somewhat uncomfortable, right? Yeah, I mean, how did you handle it? If you can tell me generally. No, I, I don't really think I've been, you know, placed in a situation where, you know, a public official, you know, has you know, ask us to do anything that we thought was unethical or untoward, you know, we really steered away from those situations. And, you know, I really haven't directly seen that happen. I I certainly am mindful and and cognizant of those kind of situations in different parts of the country uh, happening where, you know, law firms have gotten into trouble because they have, you know, entered into relationships with government officials that, you know, have drawn them in the public scrutiny. But we have, uh, I've always throughout my career been very careful about avoiding those circumstances because, you know, a one-time instance of that occurring can just be absolutely devastating to the law firm that the lawyer is associated with, as well as the lawyer, him or herself. Right. And I have the impression that you moved to Wisconsin from Illinois, aware of you felt like that they had a fair amount of these programs available. There were some good opportunities, but there weren't that many lawyers of color there. So you felt like it would be a good opportunity for your practice, right? Yeah. So my original decision to move to um, Milwaukee was informed by kind of observing Um, what was happening in the Chicago marketplace where you had, for instance, minority firms that were able to handle litigation matters for, you know, the Chicago Transit Authority or the city of Chicago or handle public finance transactions uh, for the city of Chicago. That sort of thing in the the 90s when I moved to Milwaukee had not really developed. So... Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were some tremendous opportunities to kind of educate some of the public officials about what was taking place in the city of Chicago and other places where they were pretty progressive about involving minority-owned firms and some of the public sector opportunities. And when I arrived here in Milwaukee, again, that just isn't something that was happening. And so through kind of the educational process, we were able to convince a number of the public sector uh, entities of the uh, value of having diverse teams handle some of the work that they send to outside law firms. Do you think there's any cities in the country right now that are like Milwaukee was in the 90s? And if so, which ones? Yeah, I mean, I think there are still places where you don't see minority firms, women-owned firms involved in some of the 
public sector opportunities, um, you know, here in the state of Wisconsin. I think the city of Madison is one that is, you know, a growing city that has some scale that doesn't have a track record of sending the outside assignments where they use uh, council to diverse outside firms. And, you know, I, I don't think there's a conscious effort to be exclusionary. I just think it's a, a function of the lack of exposure. So, you know, there are definitely some places where um, that, that is not happening. The city of Cincinnati is another place that even though they have a pretty diverse population, the law department within the city has not done a very good job, in my opinion, of making sure that the assignments that they send to outside counsel are including uh, women and minority-owned law firms in some of those engagements. So hopefully, as the public policy makers are aware of the disparity in terms of who are getting those opportunities, there'll be more focus um, brought to bear and opportunities open for qualified, competent minority and women-owned law firms. Do you have advice on ways that an attorney can make the entities aware and stay on their good graces to get the business from them? Yeah, I think often it's incumbent upon the law firms to not only make themselves known to the attorneys, uh, the public sector attorneys who are handling those matters to make them aware of their capabilities, but also the elected officials. You know, just candidly, I think a lot of times they will drive the process. They are in a position when the city attorney's office or the, the county corporation council is coming seeking their approval, those um, elected officials are perfectly positioned when those matters come before them for approval to ask questions about how the decision-making process um, was carried out. Was there a request for a proposal? How exactly did the city attorney decide which particular law firm was to get the engagement and whether there's any involvement of certified minority or certified disadvantaged firms or certified small business firms in the engagement. You know, in Milwaukee County, uh, we have a new corporation council who has made it very clear that she intends to have the outside firms um, look a lot different than those that she inherited in terms of who is actually representing the county and the different units of county government when they have to turn to outside counsel and, you know, has actually demanded that those law firms kind of indicate what their teams look like and who is getting billing credit for the matters. Will you tell me how has that been going over with the longtime established firms that are mostly majority shareholders? Yeah, so I think they have just, you know, had a understanding that if they want to retain that work and those relationships in terms of their internal staffing, they need to be much more thoughtful and purposeful about uh, making sure that they have diverse teams that they are presenting uh, to the county as being uh, available to work on county matters. So I'm sure it's led to some very interesting discussions internally. 
hopefully it has led those firms to be more thoughtful and um, considerate when they look at where they are finding their new lawyers, how they are bringing in lateral attorneys into their firms, because they now know perhaps for the first time that at least as it relates to their public sector practices, that diversity matters and having you know, diversity from a gender and racial standpoint is something that's going to have bottom line consequences to those firms. And um, I think we're already seeing in some of the new engagements that those firms are having to come to the table with teams that are reflective of the diversity of the county that they are representing. Okay. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss set-aside programs for disadvantaged business enterprises. These days, law firms need to do more with less. Making this happen requires efficient, cost-effective tools that work the way you do. Available as a desktop or cloud solution, Amicus Attorney Practice Management Software improves the organization of your firm and drives your bottom line. Visit amicusattorney.com to discover how you can join the thousands of lawyers who rely on amicus every day to run their practices. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the AVA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Emery Harlan. He is a Milwaukee attorney, and we are discussing set-aside programs for minority and women-owned businesses. Emery, I wanted to ask you about the set-aside programs for disadvantaged business enterprises, and I was curious if there's many instances where law firms, or a solo perhaps, would fit that description. I would imagine, unfortunately, the way their practices have been going, probably so. What, what does that involve? So I think it involves the lawyers, you know, being able to get that certification here in the state of Wisconsin, the state transportation infrastructure. They receive money from the federal government. The federal government has goals in place that they drive down to the different states that uh, they provide funding. And so there are um, on most of the outside council uh, engagements that involve federal transportation dollars, specific uh, disadvantaged business enterprise goals that are imposed on those projects. Um, and so law firms that are able to get that certification as a disadvantaged business enterprise have a terrific opportunity to make their certification known to construction companies, for instance, that are doing state projects that are funded by the department, the federal department of transportation. Those firms that have that certification have a opportunity to be subcontractors in those engagements. And my firm is currently pursuing that certification at the state level so that we can take advantage of some of those opportunities. I know the state of New York is another great market where there are opportunities for law firms that have that certification to get involved in the uh, extensive contracting that the the state of New York uh, is doing with outside law firms. What is the key checkoffs for getting the disadvantaged business enterprises certification? How, how is it different? I think it's different because unlike the minority-owned designation, those certifications involve looking at the size of the 
law firm, and if you are in a smaller law firm with lower revenues, um, you are able to qualify for that certification because size matters for that certification. Mm-hmm. So is there like a ballpark revenue number they'd want for firms to qualify or to not get above? I think it varies. Um, I think jurisdiction by jurisdiction, it varies. I think, you know, having revenues under $7 million will qualify a firm in certain jurisdictions to be able wow. to obtain, obtain that uh, certification. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's also an analysis of the owner's net worth um, after you exclude, you know, residents and principal home ownership that they will look at. Okay. And I was curious as well, for all of these certification programs, are there maybe some government entities that have them, but lawyers don't think about as much? So maybe there's a little bit less competition in entities that maybe don't jump out immediately as needing this, but they do have them. Yeah. And so, again, I would encourage uh, law firms that are in different states to look at their Department of Transportation. Those are particular departments where they have not traditionally engaged disadvantaged business enterprises in the legal space. And there's a terrific opportunity to get involved either directly working for a state Department of Transportation or being a subcontractor to a contractor who has a contract with the State Department of Transportation. So, for instance, in the state of Wisconsin, there is a significant amount of work done, you know, with road builders who have contracts with the State Department of Transportation and a firm that has a DBE, Disadvantaged Business Enterprise Certification, can work on those contracts, whether it be uh, managing environmental issues or condemnation, which a lot of um, departments of transportation have to deal with when they are trying to do road paving projects or construction projects. Often uh, they will have to acquire private property and firms that are DBE certified can work on some of those legal projects either directly for the state or through the state's contractors. What's your advice for the minority-owned firms and the women-owned firms and the DBs? How can they market themselves to general contractors to be included as a subcontractor? Um, I think getting involved in some of the trade associations. There are just a myriad of trade associations that are focused on the construction and building industry. So, you know, I think the association is called ABC. That's one of the leading trade associations for the construction industry. So I think that's um, one of the entities. There are paving um, trade associations that uh, law firms can get involved in and do presentations at their annual meetings so that the member um, firms will know that there you know, are law firms that are available that can be partners when RFPs are issued um, that call for a certain level of minority participation or disadvantaged business enterprise participation. 
Okay. I was also curious if there's opportunities for law firms in all of the set-aside programs that perhaps aren't litigation or contract focused. Like maybe there's a set-aside program that a firm could participate in for human resources compliance. Yeah. And then, you know, often, you know, one of the areas, you know, certainly doing, uh, you know, labor contracts, dealing with labor unions, that's an area where there's an opportunity for firms to participate. And then some non-traditional areas like helping a contractor who has a state contract to figure out their participation program. You know, they will often, because there are these goals that are set forth in the contracts, uh, they have to report that information to the state. And so there's an opportunity for a law firm to really develop some expertise around how to put together a compliant uh, program that will help that company meet its uh, minority or women-owned or disadvantaged business enterprise contracting goals. Around the country, state attorney generals and even federal prosecutors have been very interested in pursuing uh, litigation and criminal charges against companies that either knowingly or perhaps unwittingly find themselves contracting with uh, firms that are not legitimate minority-owned firms or disadvantaged firms and are actual pass-through entities. And so you have seen those prosecutions around the country, and therefore it's incumbent upon companies that make representations to state governments or federal governments that they have a program that demonstrates a good faith effort to engage with, you know, really reputable minority and women-owned companies. Well, on that note, what's your advice about the daily operations control question for the programs if they also have majority men who are running the businesses? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, I guess my advice would really be to the policymakers, to the city council folks, people who serve as state senators, the state assembly people, to make sure that they are scrutinizing how the money is being spent. Um, I think just anecdotally, because of some of the uh, bad actors that are out there, one should assume that some of this contracting involves fraud, and I think it's incumbent upon the elected officials to ask the the government officials who are overseeing these programs to make sure that there's a, a level of rigor and scrutiny so that they can have some comfort that the dollars are being spent with the intended recipients. All too often, you know, that just becomes a paper game where people claim to be minority-owned or women-owned or disadvantaged business-owned, and when you really get behind those businesses, you find that, in fact, they are not. And I know in the state of Wisconsin, there should be a lot more scrutiny over the certification that these businesses hold to make sure that the money is going to where it's intended. Okay. And that's everything I wanted to ask you today. Did you want to add anything else? I would only add that, again, I think there are terrific opportunities in government as well as the private sector for minority-owned, women-owned law firms. I think it's incumbent upon the elected officials in particular to ask questions not only of the legal departments within their respective governmental units, but also to make sure that the companies that they 
spend money with through these public contracts, you know, are using women and minority-owned firms both in the performance of the government contracts but also in their non-government contracts. There's nothing improper or inappropriate about a city council person asking a company that is getting a million-dollar city contract what their commitment to diversity and inclusion is, both from a workforce and a supplier standpoint. And to the extent there is that level of attention and focus brought to bear, I think that will help to enhance the level of opportunities that are made available to diverse law firms. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Emory. It was wonderful having you. Terrific. Thank you very much for the opportunity. appreciate you having me on this podcast. Of course. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and you've been listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.